0: We are now in week two of our new sermon series called The Church <laughs> in Sin City. And no, we're not talking about the church in Las Vegas. That's a different city altogether than what we're talking about. We're talking about the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And Carl gave a, a pretty good overview of that city last week. I think he used his arm to kind of give you a sense of where that, uh, where that city is. Um, and that's helpful, and it's helpful for us when trying to understand what, what Paul is, is talking about and what he's writing to this church about, and by extension, what he's saying to us, uh, it's helpful to understand that this, this city was, was significant for its time. It was a major cosmopolitan center for the region, and as such, it was the most populated, the most wealthy, the most commercial, and yet, Arguably, the most depraved city in all of Eastern Europe. It was a rough and tumble place. It wasn't. It wasn't the type of place you take a stroll around unless you were, you know, prepared to stick up for yourself. It was a, a place where Paul says back in chapter two that he came to with fear and trembling. Perhaps you remember him saying a thing about that a couple chapters back. In times you've read through uh, this letter to uh, this letter, this first letter to the Corinthians. And it's, it's to this church, in this city, in this, uh, this rough and tumble, depraved culture that Paul is writing. He's writing to a church that came up out of this culture and was still in this culture and was struggling to understand the implications of the gospel. What does it mean that we've been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light? What does it look like as we live out this faith that has become our own, as Paul has has planted the faith in this city and now he's, he's nurturing this church and he's writing to this church from a distance and he has some things to say. There's problems at the church in Corinth and we're going to be looking at, the, at these problems each week throughout our time in Lent. Last week, of course, Carl preached on the problem of division. There, was, there were factions in the church and so Paul has a thing or two to say about that in the first several chapters, at least first four chapters of this letter. But this week, we're going to be in chapter 5, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you grabbed one of our guest Bibles back there, we'll be on page 919. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and talking about the topic here of dealing with sin within the congregation, sin in the camp. What does Paul have to say about this here, beginning in verse 1? I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the Spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus." You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, so let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. To have grown up in the city of Corinth would have been to grow up in what is essentially was a moral cesspool. There's a phrase that people came to throw around at vagrants and drunkards and sexual deviants, and it was that phrase, living like a Corinthian. It's not a nice thing to say about the town you came from or the place where you live. At its highest point in the city, you could find the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and fertility, who, according to Greek mythology, for those of you who are interested in such things, Aphrodite was born when Cronus, the harvest god, took his sickle, and he castrated his father Uranus and threw his genitalia into the sea. It's a lovely story, isn't it? <laughs> remember that next time you're embarrassed about where you come from, just remember your origin story could be much worse, much worse. But the entire Greek and Roman pantheons were rife with all manner of depravity and immorality. And that's because they were accurate reflections of the depravity and the immorality of the pagan people Of the time. And Aphrodite in Corinth, with her temple prostitutes as regular features in the streets of the city, she was no exception. It's not too hard when you start to think about this is the culture in which these believers have come out of, this first generation church. It's not too hard to see how they would struggle to live out the implications of the faith that is new to them. Nevertheless, Paul's pretty harsh here, pretty hard at the beginning of chapter 5, when he says, I can hardly believe it. Yes, church in Corinth, I understand the city that, you're, that you come from. I understand the culture. I get it. I've been there, I've seen it with my own eyes, and I understand what you've come out of. And even so, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Now, that word that we translate into English, sexual immorality, is is the Greek word "pornēia," which refers to all manner of unnatural sexual activity. It's not specifically to one small thing or one nuanced kind of thing. It's a comprehensive term that encompasses really any sexual behavior that, that falls outside the boundary lines of, of what is considered the Christian norm, the biblical norm, God's design for human sexuality. Now, now, I'll just tell you right now, next Sunday, that this topic will be the theme of next Sunday in chapter 6. And, and I just want to give a, an advisory to parents that might have their children in the worship center, their teens, you know, the, the, the younger ones are dismissed, but there will be teenagers, younger folks. I just want you to be advised that the subject matter next week will be very mature and perhaps even at times graphic, okay? So this is your loving warning a week in advance, okay? But for this week, we're looking in chapter 5, and what Paul's concern here is... Is is not that, that this church is in the midst of a of a sexually depraved culture. His concern is that the behaviors of a sexually depraved culture can be found within the church. That's what's outrageous to him. That's what's shocking to him. And in this specific case, it's a form of incest. Look look again in, in verse one, he says. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Literally in the Greek that says a man has his father's wife. Now whether that means that this man has seduced his, his stepmother, mother, whatever the relationship is, whether it means that he you know he hooked up with her after a divorce or perhaps after his father has died, whatever the case may be, whatever the exact scenario here that's taken place, what is true is that a member of The church in Corinth was openly involved in an illicit union of a particularly unsavory kind. Something here is wrong. And you didn't have to be a Christian or in the church to work out just how wrong this arrangement was. Paul says it himself there in verse 1. It's something that even the pagans don't do. Now that's shocking indeed. That this behavior among Christian, at least a Christian, we don't know anything about the, the woman in the situation. We know for sure that the man at least is a member of the church. It's shocking that what this man is doing is something that would cause those people on the outside to blush. Shocking, abhorrent behavior to all. But here's the thing. Paul's real issue is not just that there's sexual immorality within the church. And it's not just that the behavior of this man is something that even the people on the outside of the church would, would, would blush over. Paul's greater concern is that this is going on and yet the Corinthians are proud of it. In verse two, you're so proud. You've got this blatant, repugnant, Public behavior in your midst, and you're so proud of yourself. What is the hope of a church that is so blinded and so hard hearted that they would tolerate and even celebrate what God deems abominable? What needs to happen anytime? a church ceases to mourn over sin within its ranks when depravity is just you know, swept under the rug. It's, we know it's going on, it's happening, it's, it's people who claim to be Christians, they're members of the church, they're involved in the church, we know it's happening, but we're just gonna pretend it's not happening, we're gonna, turn, we're gonna turn away, we don't wanna judge, we don't wanna say anything that's gonna upset the apple cart. What do you do for churches like that? What is the hope? Well, I think Paul gives us some, some cues here as to what needs to happen in the midst of that congregation, number one, this is a church that needs to become resensitized to sin. Resensitized to sin. Now, <clears throat> my wife and I are are um, coffee lovers. We drink we drink coffee together. Well, every afternoon we drink a cup of coffee together. That's one of the beauties of living where you work. You can do things like that. Uh, I walk all the way across that vast parking lot right into the center of the fish bowl and have a cup of coffee with my wife. Um, but we, we love coffee, we like, to go, we like to get coffee when we're out. Um, we, we discovered a lovely little gem of a coffee shop in Duck this past week called Duck's Cottage Coffee and Books. I don't know if you've ever heard of this little place, it's so cute, it's tiny, but you walk in and there's, there's books everywhere and you smell the coffee, it's just, it's just a really neat, we went there several times over the week. Um, and, and the most importantly, um, wasn't just that they have, you know, it's cute, or that they have, you know, kind employees, which they do, but they have really good coffee, really good coffee. My go-to coffee in, in times like that is, is the Americano. Has anybody ever had an Americano in here? Okay, so a handful of you, do you does anyone know the history of the Americano? Any, any history buffs? You want the quick history of the Americano? Go back to World War II, when American troops were in Italy, and the, the, the coffee there was too strong. So what did they do? They took hot water and they poured it over top to water it down and make it more like the American drip that they're used to. That's an Americano, <laughs> right? It sort of brings you down a peg, doesn't it, as American, like, ugh. Well, that's my go-to drink. When I get it, it's, or when I make it at home, it's pretty much three shots of espresso and hot water, okay? Now, the first time I ever had one, I never even knew what this thing even was until about four or five years ago. First time I ever had one, I was invited to go out to coffee at Starbucks here in town with a local pastor friend of mine. And I don't go to Starbucks, I don't care for Starbucks, and, and yet that's where he wanted to go, so we went, and um, he said, what are you gonna have? And I was like, I don't know, I don't really like their coffee. I mean, what do you get? He says, you wanna get what I get? I was like, okay. He, says, he goes to the counter and he says, we'll have two Americanos plus one. I'm like, what is that? That is four shots of espresso. So we, that's what, if, if you're doing the math, it's like over 250 milligrams of, uh, of caffeine in, in one cup of, of drink. So we sit down and we're talking and I'm drinking my coffee. And about five minutes in, I'm like, ooh, I'm like warm from head to toe. And my heart's pounding and, and I realize this is, this, is something, this is something that I need to check out. And so that's my go-to drink. <laughs> Here's the problem. I drink them now and I don't feel a thing. Don't feel a thing. In fact, I feel it when I don't drink them. The one day a week that I don't have coffee in the morning is Sunday morning. And every Sunday after church, I have a headache. Yeah, because I'm addicted to caffeine apparently. But what's my point here? My point is I've, bec- my, I've become so accustomed To the caffeine infusion, I'm so used to it; it's it's such a normal part of my life that I don't even feel it anymore. And it makes me wonder if perhaps there's certain individuals or certain churches that have become so accustomed to sin that they don't feel its seriousness anymore. It's just part of life. It's part of life. Look at verse 2 again with me. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow. Do you know that word there, mourning in sorrow, refers to the type of grief you feel when someone you love has died? When was the last time you felt that way about sin? that you are broken by its presence in your life or the life of a friend or fellow church member. It should always be a cause for sorrow when the enemy has scored a victory, shouldn't it? It should always be a cause for sorrow when brokenness has has taken place within the church of Jesus Christ. It should always be a cause for sorrow when a soul has been consumed by sin, but you know what else would you expect from a church that is full of divisions and factions? I mean, they clearly don't see themselves or live out the reality of being a family, do they? I mean, if if, if this is happening in their midst, if a, if brokenness has has occurred in their midst, if a person is lost in sin and and is heading to hell and is destroying the church and dragging the name of Jesus through the mud, well. If at the end of the day all that matters is me and Jesus, who cares? And I wonder if that was the mentality in this church. And that's why it was so important for Paul to start there in chapter 1 with this idea of no there's one body. We're not we're not Christ Christ isn't divided. You are one body and he's going to revisit this later in chapter 12. The Church is one body with many parts. Our lives in Christ are interconnected, so that in verse 26 of that chapter, if one part suffers, then what? We all suffer. When was the last time you, you felt suffering because of the sin or the lostness or the brokenness of the person sitting across the worship center from you. And if you haven't ever felt that, the question to me, for me is why? Is it because all that matters to you when you come here on Sunday morning is your own personal experience with Jesus? You come and get the feels. You come and you get something from from the music or from the preaching. And then you go home and then you've had church. Listen, if that's your view of church, you are not having church. We, We are a body. We are the body of Christ. We are interconnected. Our lives are interwoven into each other such that if one of us suffers, all of us suffers. And if one of us is is having something good, then all of us can celebrate. If one part is honored, the apostle says, every part is glad. You should have sorrow that your brother has been consumed by sin. But he also says you should be mourning in shame because you have brought reproach to the name of Jesus. Man, I don't want to be a part of a church that does that. That drags the name of Jesus through the mud. The very one who gave his life away. Not just to save you, by the way, from the consequences of sin. He gave his life away to save you from the power of sin. It's not either or, it is always both and. Yes, thank you, Jesus, for for paying my debt. He paid a debt I could never pay back because of my sin. Absolutely. Oh, but thank you also, Jesus, for breaking the power of sin's stranglehold on my life so that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a slave to righteousness. Not because of anything I can do or because of my own strength or my own virtue or my own goodness. No, but because of you, because of you and me. How dare we drag the name of that Jesus through the mud? And that's exa- exactly what it is to, to continue unabashed in such wanton rebellion as what we see in this passage here. You should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And so the question is if this is the, their condition, how do they ever get back? If they need to be resensitized to sin, how, do they ever, how does that ever happen? How do you recover God's perspective on things? Well, it always begins, like everything in the Christian life, with repentance. Repentance. That willful, determined, deliberate, conscious decision to turn away from what God says is wrong and to turn to what God says is right. It's not a matter of the feels. It's not like once I muster up enough emotional fortitude, or if I feel the, the, the need to do something, well, then I will make the decision. Listen, if you're waiting around for your feelings, you are going to be a, you're constantly gonna to be tossed to and fro in, in life. Just a prisoner to the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of your circumstances. And, and, and the scriptures say, no, turn your mind. Make a decision. We've done, we've, we, this is like the third or fourth time in the last couple of months that this has come up. You have to turn from sin. You have to turn, even if you don't feel it. When you hear God's word preached and the the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and you feel just the slightest prick, just the slightest, that's your cue. That's where it starts. And then it comes by spending time in the word. It comes by prayerfully seeking the aid of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's gonna come and, and he's going to expose the, the darkness that's in your life, the darkness that's in your heart, the things that, that don't belong there. He wants to come and shine light on those things. And he's the one that brings the transformation and, 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 and performs whatever has to happen on the inside of you so that you do become resensitized to the things that, that break the heart of God. So you, you turn, you immerse yourself in the word, you pray and, and invite the, the presence and the power of the spirit. You come and join the fellowship of God's people, and you surround yourself with a community that has certain values and certain distinctives that's different from the world. You're going to become more like the crowd that you associate with. Come to church, be a part of the fellowship, rub shoulders and, and serve and worship, and, and be a part of a believing body that, that puts the word of God at the heart and soul of its existence join a life group, have accountability, submit to discipleship. These are the ways that that Christ's own mind and Christ's own heart becomes formed in our lives so that we can eventually come to see and feel and desire things that God sees and God feels and God desires. You come to have his perspective and not your perspective. And you can hate the things that God hates. and love the things that God loves. Only then can any church ever hope to be a people that are moved by the things that we should be moved by. Only then can we ever hope to become a church filled with people like what Wesley described as those who fear nothing, fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Oh, wouldn't that be, could you imagine Church full of people like that, whose singular fear in life is sin, and whose singular desire in life is God. Man, Wesley said in his time, just give me a hundred people like that. Just a hundred. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Just a hundred. The first step for the church in Corinth, or for any church that has become desensitized to sin, is to become resensitized to sin. To imbibe God's own perspective, God's own disgust with it, God's own outrage at it, to fear what it produces in the lives of people and in the life of a church. But then, secondly, (laughs) and definitely more uncomfortably, become resensitized to sin and execute church discipline. Corinthians, you should be mourning in sorrow and in shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. That one, that one hurts a little. That one's hard. Now, Paul's not talking about, please hear me, and please hear the scriptures. <clears throat> Paul's not talking about the type of church where everyone's just sitting around looking down their nose at each other waiting for someone to screw up. Just so that they can show how morally superior they are over them and make a public example of them and humiliate them and talk about them behind their back. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, so that's that would be what? The other extreme on the spectrum that we're talking about here? You have... You know, the Corinthian extreme where no one cares a lick about the sin that's going on in the fellowship and everything is swept under the rug, and they're doing things there and tolerating and celebrating things there that that cause the pagans to blush. That's one end of the but on the other end you have that, you know, hyper judgmental, pharisaical type of church. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you've been in one of those. But I dare say many of you probably have at some point in your life. You some of you may have been in both. And I don't think Paul would advocate either, at all. In this situation that he's talking about here, what Paul's talking about is the final stage of Christ's own protocol for dealing with sin in the community. Carl referred to it last week, I believe. That, that uh, passage from Matthew 18 where Jesus gives us this beautiful procedure, this gracious, loving, but truthful procedure for dealing with a brother that's in sin. And what's the first step? Do you remember? Is it go on Facebook and say the little thing about them when no one's? Is it tell the person next to you at the potluck? No, it is you approach them personally and privately. What happens if that doesn't work? Well, you grab a couple other people. And together, in a small, again, private, intimate context, you you present the issue to the person. Jesus says, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. It's not just me versus you. It's never me versus you. It's not not the point. It's we see something in your life that, that shouldn't be there. And we're not here to judge you or criticize you or humiliate you. This is perfectly confident, completely confidential. This is is just in the intimacy of this, of this sacred, (laughs) private, personal moment here. What happens if that fails? Well, then you bring the matter before the church. And Jesus says, then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. In other words, don't don't treat them or view them any longer as a fellow believer. And this is the biblical way of addressing sin in the congregation. And from my experience as a pastor and just as a Christian man, there's tremendous wisdom in it. Tremendous. In, In my experience, things almost always get resolved if you just do step one. That's the beauty of it. We always like to jump to the, the last step and get all outraged and try to imagine a church where that takes place. But there are steps that precede that. And listen, if we would just follow Jesus' direction and lovingly go and speak the truth and love to one another in privacy and with their best interest in mind, it's amazing what can happen out of that. And yet so often, what do we, we don't do it at all. We're so crippled by the, the fear that we're going to be viewed as, as judging or hypocrites or whatever. And maybe that's a possibility in your life. And there's other things Jesus has to say on the topic, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But we, whatever it is, we, we, or maybe we're just afraid of any type of confrontation. Or maybe we're, we're so just rife with sin in our own life that we don't feel like we have any standing whatsoever to ever talk about it in someone else's life. And so what do we do? We we sweep things under the rug, we pretend it's not an issue, we turn a blind eye, we avoid confrontation, and then we talk about it to other people behind the person's back. And I'll tell you, that never produces any good ever in the life of a church or in any human relationship. Ever. That approach has a a 100% failure rate. Every time. The only loving, the only truthful, the only biblical thing to do is what Jesus himself commands. Look, I would never, ever advocate being a judgmental congregation oh there's death in that and by god's grace and by god's power and his presence in this congregation may it never be true of us that we are a judgmental congregation but listen at some level if we're honest with the scriptures you and i have to be a people who make judgments concerning the beliefs and the behaviors of one another it has to happen in some form or capacity Yes, Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. I need, I need to know not to be a judgmental person. I need to know that, that, that God is gonna hold me accountable for my sins, that, that, God, that God's judgment is ready to fall upon those who aren't humble and, 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 and contrite, who aren't repentant, absolutely. Thank you, Jesus, for the warning here. Yes, Jesus, in the same passage there, warned against the failure to to see the, the beam in your own eye as you're trying to point out the speck in someone else's eye. Oh, what profound practical wisdom is that? People walking around with the beam sticking out of their eye and they think they can see clearly. Jesus says, no, no, you need the beam removed first before you can be any help to anyone else. And people take those verses there in Matthew 7 to mean that you don't have any right to tell me that anything that I do or believe is wrong. I think back in the, I think it was in the 90s. Before, before that time, the, I think the, the most well-known Bible verse in America was John 3.16. And pretty sure by the time the 90s came around, it had changed to judge not lest ye be judged. Because no one wants to be told that anything to do is or say or believe is wrong, ever. And we're so afraid to be labeled as judgmental. Jesus never never said, don't ever judge anyone or anything, that's not what he said. Just a few verses later in that same passage in Matthew, he says, beware of the false prophets. You can identify them by their fruit. What does he mean? He's saying by using, by using discriminating judgment, you need to discern truth from error, from right, from wrong. The, what is immoral, what is unholy, from what is to what is holy and what is right. You need to exercise the rational capabilities that God has given you with of course with grace applied. We don't want to walk around thinking like you know like we used to think and use that use that judgment. That judgment's always going to be wrong. But as we become more and more attuned to the things of God, as we become more and more immersed in his word, as his spirit has more and more claim over our lives, as we as our minds are conformed into the after the very mind of Christ, absolutely use judgment. Make discerning discriminating decisions between what you see in the fruit of other people's lives in the things they say and they do. Jesus never said don't ever judge anyone or anything at all. He says in John 7:24, judge rightly. Judge rightly. And we take when we take it all into consideration, it means judge with humility. Recognizing Recognizing the plank in our eye. Judge with integrity. Let's, let's receive what the grace and the, the accountability and the work that I need to be in a place where I can see more clearly to help a brother or sister in need. Judge with self-awareness. Judge in agreement with God's word. And I think most importantly, judge with the well-being of the other in mind. Listen, if, you, if that's the type of judging that's going on in a church full of Christians who love one another and want nothing more than to see each other grow in grace and in holiness, then man, I want to be a part of a judging church. This man's sin in First Corinthians 5 was so public and so egregious and its recourse was so plainly obvious and overdue that Paul says in verses three and four, basically, I'm not even there and I've already passed judgment on this guy. Paul can see it from a distance. Indeed, look at, look at verse 12 again. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge the world. That's God's, that's God's responsibility. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. What this man is doing is wrong. This has gone on long enough. None of the efforts, according to the the protocols of Jesus, to, to bring him back from what he's doing is working. He's dragging the name of Christ through the mud. The only thing left to do is remove him from your fellowship. Ek muso humon, out of the middle of you. He has to go. And by the way, it's not just for the good of the church. It's for the good of the individual. Now, how's that for a shock? That kind of blows our minds, doesn't it? Because it's hard to imagine how could that ever be good for him to be, to be excommunicated, essentially, to be cut off from the people of God. How could that ever be good for someone? Well, Paul tells us how. Look at verse 5. Do this why? <clears throat> so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved. Isn't that interesting? What Paul is saying is this man has a greater chance of seeing the truth for what it is and coming back to the light if you kick him out than if you allow him to carry on like you've been doing in tolerance and sweeping it under the rug. The goal of removing someone from the fellowship should always be that you might be able to win them back. That should always be, again, I said judge with the best interest of the other in mind. They need to feel the pain of separation. They need to, to come to know that there are consequences for sin. They need to, to see and feel visibly, tangibly, the reality of what sin ultimately produces. That is separation from God. You, The church is, is this gracious place on earth where we can give people a foretaste of what eternity in hell actually is, that they would not end up there. Isn't that interesting? It's hard to think about, it's hard to wrap our minds around, and I pray, I pray it never comes to that with any of us here. <laughs> but you get the point. They need to feel what's happening the pain of being separated from God. And that's really the ultimate purpose of any discipline, isn't it? Whether you're, you're talking church discipline or you're talking about you know, disciplining children, whatever it is, that, that the offender would feel the pain of the separation that the violation has produced. If, if, if my child has lied to me, and has broken fellowship with me, has introduced suspicion, has introduced dishonesty, there is now a rift in our relationship. And the discipline that, is, res, res, that responds to that needs to, to, they need to feel what they have done. It's not to be mean, it's not to hurt or harm, it's so that they can see, look what, look what my behavior has produced in the most important relationship of my life. With the ultimate goal of what? Oh, that they would come, And and experience the loving embrace of forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. Oh, church, that's the point of what Paul is saying here. He needs to feel tangibly, practically, in his life, the reality of what his behavior has produced. Oh, but it's so that you might, by God's grace, welcome him back in, restore him, that he might be saved. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says God himself disciplines those he loves. And sometimes in extreme cases, the church is commanded to resort to extreme measures to save a soul of a person we love. It's better that they experience temporary pain now that it might bring them to heaven than to allow them to become full-on apostate, resulting in everlasting pain and hell later. Do it for the good of the individual, Paul says. And, by the way, for the good of the church. (laughs) Paul's not talking about the church's posture towards the nonbeliever. You remember what he said there in verse 11. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in these sins. You are not even to eat with such people. He's not talking about the outsider, he's talking about the insider who claims to follow Jesus and yet lives in blatant rebellion to the word of God. He says there comes comes a point where you have have to break fellowship with them. Why? Well, the principle's there back in verse six. Because sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Meaning it's infectious. That's that's the, the dark power of sin is that it spreads. And and so often you and I in our in our private lives. And when I say private I mean like our really private lives. That place where no one generally speaking, no one has access to that place. We live under this delusion that what happens there doesn't really ever affect anyone else. And that is a lie from hell. Paul says, this sin is like yeast that will spread. You have to address it. It has to be confronted. It cannot be tolerated. And friends, I would say that's true about all sin, not just the really big extravagant ones that everyone sees. When the Jews were getting ready to leave on the Passover night, Do you remember what they had to do? There couldn't be a microscopic granule of yeast. What was God trying to tell them? If you're going to be my people in the world, you need to be clean. You need to be clean. Because a little bit spoils the whole. Sin will fester and grow and spoil everything it touches, especially when it becomes a public spectacle. The church's very witness for Christ in the world is at stake in these matters. How can God's people preach the good news that we have been saved from sin only to just persist in it and dismiss it and even treat it as normative or, God forbid, celebrate it? People are not gonna be drawn to any gospel that does not result in a transformed life. And that's a fact. You will not reach a soul in this world with your milk toast Christian experience. Because at the end of the day, the world has to see the fruit. They have to see the result. Okay, you're telling me about Jesus, but where's the evidence of Jesus in your life? What difference does he make? If they don't see a difference to our faith, well, they're gonna determine that there is no value to our faith. Our witness is at stake in all of these matters. Oh, there's so much more to be said, but we're out of time. So I'm willing to leave you with a a handful of questions. I want you to to ask yourself these questions and respond as the Lord leads you to. What is your tolerance level to sin in your life? What's your threshold? Is it, I can tolerate, I don't know, 20% of my life being sinful. (laughs) I don't know how you even quantify it. You know, these things are all really bad. I don't do the, okay, so I have the one thing or the two things, or the 20? What's your tolerance level? Are you like caffeine-addicted Pastor Sean, where it's so pervasive in your life that you don't even feel it anymore? Well, I've given you the the way to get out of that. You need to repent. Don't wait for the feels. You need to turn from that. You, You need to confess that. Who do you confess to in your life? Do you ever confess to anybody? No, we're not Catholic. We don't have confession booths and you don't have to come and say anything to me. But who in your life, the scriptures say confess your sins one to another. Who do you confess to? Who do you ever go to that you can trust and you can say, look, I've got this in my life and I, I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. I need your accountability. Who is in your life? Who do you need to go and hold accountable with humility, with integrity, according to the protocols that Jesus has given us, the right way of doing it, in truth and love, some of you, I guarantee it, if not a lot of you, know someone in your life that you've seen something and you know the Lord wants you to speak into it, but you haven't for any number of different reasons. Maybe the Lord's asking you to do it today. In what ways is your witness being impaired? And lastly, What needs to happen for this church to be a place full of people who hate nothing but sin and desire nothing but God? It's questions for all of us here today. And I invite you to hear the Spirit's whisper to your heart. He's prompting. He's speaking now. Listen to what he's saying and respond and do what he says. Let's pray. Lord, Man, sometimes preaching is the most easy and natural and enjoyable thing in life to do, and then other times it it hurts, it's hard. And I pray, Lord, that the people who've been listening here this morning, whether in this room or online, or people who listen later on YouTube or however, I pray that they would hear, hear your heart in this, that they wouldn't hear anyone advocating being pharisaical or judgmental or hypercritical or being a church full of people that look down at each other and talk about each other behind their backs and form groups and cliques and all that. Lord, that is toxic. That is death. That is anti-church. Lord, may may that not be true of us. May this be a, a people who repent, who confess, who believe, who are open to instruction, who are humble, who are lowly and gentle just like you. May we be a people who by your spirit would have your own mind so that we can see the world and see ourselves and see all of life through your lenses and not through our own. That we would be disgusted by the things that are disgusting to you but that we would love and value and desire the things that move your heart. Lord, may we be a people indeed whose only fear in all this life is the presence of sin in our own lives, in the lives of our family, in the life of our church, and whose ultimate desire is for you. Thank you, Lord. That I I know this is a church like that. Help us to become ever more so by your grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.